Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to Jerusalem U's, the Israel Teacher's Lounge. See how I said Israel first? The Israel Teacher's Lounge, where we keep you in touch with what's going on in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with my co-host, Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It is gone. <laughs> you look a little beat. How come? <laughs> oh, it's been, a, it's been a, an exciting month, so you know. I guess you want me to elaborate on that? I mean, yeah, if you're uh, bringing it up. We just had our uh, Core 18 Shabbaton, and um, we've had a few Core 18 Fridays this month, and as you know, I was in Poland, so it's been a, a, a pretty exciting month. Okay, well, thank God it's for good things. Yeah, we actually, Core 18 was pretty cool. We were in Akko this Shabbat, and, and uh, had a couple different tours of Akko, one from a Christian Arab, one from uh, a Jewish... Uh, a uh, Jewish mankal, or uh, director of the Hezder Yeshiva, so so pretty exciting. So, you do you f- do you feel that our responsibility as educators is to make students understand a varied range of narratives and perspectives in understanding modern Israel? Uh, yeah, I think that that is a primary um, job of an educator in trying to teach about any kind of modern country or any kind of modern, um, not even modern history, whatever, mm-hmm. have to try and uh, see that there is not one blank, you know, page, this is it, and things, nothing is ever black and white. And the more we can delve into the complexity, um, the better we can try and understand uh, what, what we're talking about, even though how do we do that? I guess that's a question that we've been trying to deal with. How do you get to <laughs> truth? Like if we're looking at politics today, right? Can I get to understand what's happening in Israel by reading the paper? So let, let's talk about how how journalism works, how we should interpret journalism, and how we should talk to our students about the different perspectives and ideas without trying to indoctrinate or bias them. Let's start with war news. Can you just give us sort of, it's been a big week in terms of, last week was a big week in terms of what was going on in the North with the border with Iran and Syria and Hezbollah. What? And this week is a big week in terms of what's going on in the south, uh, the southern border. Can you just give a quick update of what's been going on in the southern border? Yeah, so again, it it all went down over Shabbat, where um, his uh, Hamas, as, you know, it does often, um, lays um, IEDs, right, uh, on the fence between... IEDs means improvised explosive devices. That's yeah. the American term. There you go, right. Improvised explosive devices. They they lay on the fence between Israel and Gaza, hoping that they will be able to blow up uh, in, in the vicinity of a um, border patrol, an Israeli border patrol. Um, and this time, what they did is they. I mean, usually they're they're discovered. Yeah, they're discovered, and usually not. Usually they're discovered beforehand. Sometimes you'll hear that there was a Palestinian shot by the fence. That's often because they're they caught laying it. Other times you'll hear that Israeli for you know Israeli soldiers took down a flag that was flown. You know that they fly up these flags illegally onto the fence or this or that. So this time they f- they hung up a flag, but under it was a um, was an IED, and when they went to take it down, it blew up. And I think four soldiers were hurt. Um, and then Israel responded with, uh, with um, bombing of Gaza. And the, the Gazans, uh, the Hamas, also re- responded with some rocket fire last night, I think. So Israel also um, 
uh, did some more bombing. So it's kind of a, this cat and mouse game that we kind of play, which is heightened tension, but um, short of you know, real all-out all out battle. Similar, similar to the northern border, it's this, it's this ratcheting up, but trying to keep it without getting totally blazing out of control, which, of course, could happen. And, and you, oh, by the way, I think I made a mistake. I don't, it wasn't Hamas, it was Islamic Jihad that set it off as a response to Israel having discovered one of their tunnels and bombing their tunnels uh, a couple weeks ago or something. Sorry. You know, and if you're in the military, you're working on this stuff all the time. We only hear about it from journalism sporadically because things, when things get out of control. Or usually when it, it bleeds, it leads, right? So right. since there was uh, soldiers that were hurt, so it became uh, top news. And also Israel responds more when when people hurt. And one of the rockets hit a house. Um, so that also brings a greater response. Israel, no one was hurt in that, but it did hit a house. And in terms of Israeli military spokespeople informing the public, this also triggered... At least these events, I think, has something to do with the spokespeople relating to the Israeli people. What's going on? What do you mean? Well, you were saying before that that the military. We were reading the headlines before about military heads saying the Sahel is the IDF is gearing up for war this summer. Oh, ah, you mean the the headlines? Yeah. So just before we started, we looked at the Times of Israel. And the the head of military operations gave a very unusual interview, saying that 2018 is we're um, much closer to a major war up on our northern border, um, and the and the army is getting ready for that. So, yeah, so it's the, so right. The spokespeople or people are giving interviews. It's the way of the government and the army to, on the one hand, um, get the civilian population psychologically ready for it. Um, and start moving in that direction on the one hand. On another way, it's um, a way that um, the army and the government gets to warn our our neighbors that we're taking this seriously and Israel's ready. So it's kind of a it's a way of heightening rhetoric without direct threat. It's also a way of a way of ratcheting up the military response by by ratcheting up the rhetoric. In other words. Part of the ratcheting up isn't just in with ammunition. Part of it's with words, which always happens. And I think that's for sure true in the Middle East. It's not diplomatic isn't the word I would use, but it, but it is rhetorical. Yeah. Now, yeah, for sure. Now, when you read a news story, so you see this interview, well, I, guess, I guess in the question of how do you read, I'm going to say newspaper, even though I know it's not on paper. Do we have a better word, a news site? Like, I just feel the need to say newspaper. I think we still use that newspaper, even though it's known that newspapers are now on our phones. Right. Or computers. So, so, so the digital, I'm going to use an, uh, a vestigial term. A digital and, broadsheet. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a vestige. It's a vestige I, I, in class, I will still sometimes say blackboard instead of whiteboard, even though they're not black, because that's the old name. So I will still say newspaper. Did you ever say, oh, where's the chalk? I do not. I do not. I do not call my marker chalk. I say marker. Um, but I have a cousin who still calls a refrigerator an icebox. It is not an icebox. Uh, I guess when you read a newspaper, the journalist may not say to you, this is the military's way 
of alerting the people to be prepared and of warning the enemy through rhetoric and ratcheting up in rhetoric as a way to prevent full-scale explosion. That thing that you did in your head, Alan, that you interpreted that, what is that? How do you, how do our student, how do we teach our students to do that? To, you know, we say the point of this podcast is to have understanding beneath the headlines. So we can keep doing that with the podcast and we will for the foreseeable future. But how do we train other people to do that? Wow. That's a good question. How do you train other people to do that? I mean, isn't that part, isn't that partially a, a, a goal of an educator who's teaching not only history, but the relevance of that history to today and how to understand what's going on today? Sort of, I guess what I'm asking is what we do on this podcast, how come we do that and how can we help other people do that better? I mean, I guess you're thinking that's the, it's kind of the, uh, ex, not exciting, the, the catchphrase that people like to throw around today, critical thinking or analytical thinking. So I'm, I'm like trying to think about how I learned it. I certainly learned it in high school um, and definitely in college, but definitely in high school. My high school at Hebrew Academy, today Barrack, which is very heavy on like history and philosophy and less on Jewish texts of, you know, um, in those days back in the 80s. But the, and the idea was very much to like think about what you're reading and think about what you have to do is you have to ask yourself what, why, what is the intention of this person who is either writing this opinion piece or, or being interviewed. Like there's a reason now. And I think that that's where I would start. You have to ask that question. And that question is why are they writing this or saying this at this point? So it starts with the tools of critical thinking and critical analysis. Why is he saying this? What's the context? Um, what is his goal? What's the writer's goal? What's the interviewee's goal? What's, 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 what are the things going on here? And then critical analysis of what they say, which you do to any text. Yeah. And who's the, who's, what is the news outlet, right? What do they generally write about? Why are they focusing on this? Are they, you know... Um, do they have an agenda? I mean, they, everybody has an agenda. I think it's there's a difference between having an agenda and being indoctrinating. I mean, I think everybody has an agenda. Yeah, we all have a bias, and that's that's going to color what we do and why we choose to do what we do. And that's not a bad thing. That's human, but it is important when you're listening to somebody to understand it. And I and that's sort of what I that's sort of the metaphor that I like to use, which is if I treat the newspaper or if I treat current events. Okay, this is a really weird metaphor. But if I treat it like a person, in other words, I know the more I know that person, the more I get what they're doing right now. Right. I understand them. I understand the way they do things. I understand when they say this, I have a better sense of what they mean, the better I know them. So for sure it's true that the better I know this newspaper, the better I get what they mean and they say. The better I understand journalism in general, the more I'll understand what they say. The other piece of it is, though, if I just meet you today and you tell me something, and here, I'm talking about understanding world events, let's say. I read about an event that happens today in Pakistan. It's hard for me to understand what's going on. I can read what's going on that day in Pakistan if I think that it's the newspaper's job. And it'll give me a few paragraphs of context. If I think I understand that event and can extrapolate from that news story what's going on, I think I'm mistaken if I don't have a deeper knowledge of Pakistan and its history and its culture and its and its um, 
and it's context. What you're saying is the context. You don't really understand the context of what of any given story of a place that you're not familiar with on a on a like a real. Yeah. Basis. By the way, I think you know when we say that people have a bias, uh, 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 when we complain that people do not have a nuanced view of Israel, that's I think what we mean. They see a photograph or or a video image, or, or and they let's they or they read one article and they see you know an Israeli tank and they see or Israeli artillery landing in a Gazan town and they see a school burnt. So that picture. They, you know, we say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, maybe it is, but I don't really understand the context if I don't know the history and the background and the culture. And there's a lot I need. So I, there's 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 the skills that you're describing, but there's also the knowledge base that I need to put it into the broader context, which I then apply the skills to the analytical, critical thinking skills to figure out what this story really means. So, and I guess this has like, and you're right, it's about how people look at Israel. I will a podcast that we listen to, you know, that is experts on foreign policy, American experts on foreign policy. I often feel that like they just don't get Israel. And I'm not an expert foreign policy person, but I definitely get Israel better than they do. I feel like I do because I understand the context because I'm living the politics of Israel as my everyday life and as an informed citizen. Um, and, and so like, I feel like, whoa, they're just, they're just not getting it. But on the other hand, if I look at it and I think about like, like you said, Pakistan, I read one article and how many times I read an article about Pakistan, you know, when something happens or this and that, I, I don't really understand it either um, more than that. And it, yeah, and I think if you're passionate about something, you can grow more knowledgeable about it and be and, and develop an ability to put specific things into context and understand them. I, I was just talking to somebody today this week about a person, you know, pretty far Zionist, but pretty far in the political left from America. He was visiting, and he was saying, um, you know, what is it we have to do to get through to Israel? about that the occupation is an existential threat to, you know, you're either going to lose, if you annex the West Bank and give them citizenship, then it won't be Jewish. If you annex it and don't give them citizenship, it won't be a democracy. And I guess if you expel them, it'll be like a horrible place. And I said, I said, I said, you know, you keep telling Israelis that as if we don't know that, as if, as if the Israeli center doesn't know that the Palestinian state is a danger and not having a Palestinian state is a danger. What would you like us to do? We've tried to negotiate peace and they won't take the state. So we've tried unilateral disengagement. That doesn't work. What would you like Israel to do? So he said, well, they should make a more public statement about supporting a Palestinian state. I said, well, you're just talking about imaging. You want us to be seen better by the world. But practically, how do we solve this problem of ruling the West Bank? And he had nothing to say. I said, so you put us in the position of, I said, here's a very bad analogy. A person who's addicted to smoking knows it's bad for them, but they're addicted. And you keep saying, you know, smoking's bad for you. No, I know, but how do I quit smoking? Well, it's very bad for you. Well, how do I quit smoking? Well, it's very bad for you. Well, if you do that enough, I'm just going to start tuning you out because you have nothing productive to tell me. I know I have a problem and I can't solve it. So you telling me that it's a problem doesn't help me. I think that it's a, it's both, and this is somebody who knows history. So part of it is you need, well, I guess what I'm saying is, this is a very long-winded way to get to this. If I want to understand that, 
<laughs> that yawn was not indicating that. That was just a, that was that that yawn was a product of what you were saying earlier. Yeah, it's just been a long that time of day. <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't taking it as a hit. Uh, I think that if I want to understand current events, I have to understand history and culture. If I want to understand the relevance of history and culture, I have to understand current events. I have to have a sense of what's going on around me now to be able to think intelligently. This all feeds. And it's a little bit like knowing people. Do I know, do I understand my brother because I grew up with him? Because I, 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 I have a relationship with him now. It's, it's a lifetime of interaction gives me a sense and an, even a set of not only skills like you were talking about, but even instincts that I, that I, that I, and sometimes I'll make mistakes. I'll assume too much. But when you, when you spend enough time thinking about studying, about reading, about understanding it, suddenly you develop a, that ability, I think, that is something we're trying to get across to our students. How, when you read a newspaper, to understand what it's really, what's really happening, what that, re- what that newspaper represents about the world, isn't necessarily what the newspaper is saying about the world. There's a lot more to it. Yeah, and I guess the other you know, part of that is that then you compare newspapers. Right? You try and read multiple newspapers, and one of those that aren't always confirming what you think. Right, yeah, um, or media outlets, whatever you want to do, because that helps you sort of gain perspective, which I think we often. Well, I mean, that's the op- what you're talking about is the opposite of critical thinking. If I'm just looking towards journalistic outlets to reaffirm what I know to create confirmation bias, that confirmation bias is a flaw in critical thinking. So, I think it's one that we is like we're very tend tending to. You know, always it's much easier just to read the things that that confirm what you know, what you think about something. So now I'm just adding information to my already baseline of how I view the world. And I guess that's what we're kind of talking about. This shapes how I view the world. So if I'm going to view the world, if I, I come up with my view of the world, so then I just read things that add information but re- reaffirm what I believe about the world. Which is the kind of thing that Russian bots exploit by feeding your feeding your confirmation bias more with things that make you feel more and more passionately and more extremely about a position you already had instead of looking to broaden the perspective and understanding the broader world better and seeing, look, it's much more interesting for me to find my blind spots and my mistakes than it is for me to prove myself right again. And there are things I actually am right about. And that's okay. Something bad. But it's more interesting to find the things that I'm wrong about or things that I missed or things that I can uncover. That's... That's, I think, an important news habit that we would want our students to develop. Yeah, I think so also. And it, it's, it, so it's, it's looking at, you know, certainly when it comes to Israel, it's also trying to kind of have an open, critical mind about it, about what you're reading um, on all sides, really. So intellectual humility. I don't know that that's a separate thing from the skills you were talking about earlier. I do think that's a critical thinking skill. Intellectual humility, I don't assume what I don't know. I try to keep as aware, of course I'll assume things, but I try to be self-aware of what I don't know. I think that's an important, maybe maybe it's a fundamental underpinning of critical thinking, but it's essential, I think, to critical thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think you always have to, I mean, there's so much out there to know that you can never know everything. Even if you, even when you feel like you know a topic like front and back, the truth is you really don't. <laughs> you know, there's always more to know about anything. 
And that being the case, your perspectives are by by definition somewhat limited, and you're going to have blind spots. Yeah. So you also have to you have to build what you know so that you can understand it better. Understanding that you're you're going to be wrong. So that, so then how do I so then I come from the other side. So then how do I have a confident position on anything? Well, well, you don't want to be you don't want to be a sort of uh, intellectual nomad that just says, "Well, I'll just agree with what I'm thinking right now," but I have no uh, basis from which to think. I, I think that what uh, and this has less to do with how you read. You know, you know what I'm saying? I, I do know what you're saying. I think that you have to have a set of principles and values and beliefs that root what your opinions are going to be. That being the case, with your best level of information now. My opinion is is an expression of those values that I hold to be true. So you can prove me wrong. In other words, if I think that if I think that uh, that taking care of refugees of my, when 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 my people's refugees were abandoned, then I don't want to abandon another people's refugees. So that's my principle. And now you can prove to me that this is a different scenario, but the burden of proof is on you to prove it. I'm open to that. So, so I'm going to put. I'm going to take it a little bit of a different way and ask you because I think you know we get this from students at times, and you know, oh, so basically, you know, if I had been born a different situation, if I had been born a Palestinian, then I wouldn't. You know, it's only really a matter of how I was born, and not of anything eternal, truth or idea, right? Yeah, I think if I were born a Palestinian, I'd be fighting for Palestinian rights. But I, but that's okay. I don't think. I, in other words, it's an impossible hypothetical because I'm not right. me anymore. But but a person like me, I'm sure there, are, there must be some Palestinians who are like me who say, well, I have to understand the Israeli side, but I'm going to fight for my people and my side as best I can. I'm going to do it in as moral a way as I can. Um, and I'm not going to accept defeat for my people because I believe that their cause is just. And and there for sure are people like that. No, yeah, definitely. We've met them. We've met them, right? So uh, we, we know some of them. So that uh, so you're saying, but you're saying there is a constant you'd like to think is Michael. In this yeah, hypothetical, yeah, I've yeah, made up. I've made up a Michael-like person who's a Palestinian who will look at things similarly, critically, and and try to be as honest as possible. My question to you is: It's the corresponding. Idea. In other words, it's not as like. Uh, okay, sorry. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think that I think that what we're arguing is that you should apply. Not arguing. Well, we're making a case that one should read the news with a certain historical and political sophistication that one builds over the course of years, and by reading journalism over the course of years to have a better understanding. But it's not just, you can't just get it from reading newspapers. You're also going to have to read longer form writing about the subject to understand it better. Um, I would, you know, it could be documentaries also, but at a certain point, you're going to have to read some books, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Books are pretty key. And, and they're so good. There are so many good books on any subject that if you want to speak intelligently about it, there comes... And clearly, in this case, we're talking about Israel, since it's our, you know, our, our bread and butter, right? Do you have formative books in your understanding of Israeli history that, you, in your, that founded your sort of perspective on how to learn more about history? Oh, me? Uh, yeah, you. About Israeli history? Me? You talk yeah, you. I'm talking to you. Uh, formative books about Israeli history? 
Um, well, I like I like uh, Michael Oren's 1967. His book on Six Day War I think is very good. And what's Al, what's Rabinovich's book on the 73 War? Because um, I think they are finely tuned. And then, of course, the some of the Benny Morris stuff. Um, you know, yeah, uh, there's some older stuff. Okay, I'm, I'm blanking right now. Now, did you get what I'm asking? Like, they, they didn't just inform you, they also shaped your thinking. Yeah, I think those books shaped my thinking because I think they did a good job of trying to dig deeper into what was going on, deeper into the, whether it be in, into Israel, you know, into Israel. And that's what, I think that's, that's what Yossi Klein Alevi does so well. Yeah. Either in his books or in his articles, he does really well. Like like Dreamers, the great thing about like Dreamers is that it shows you such a diverse group of people. Well, what is that book, Like Dreamers? Like Dreamers is a. It's basically it takes a bunch of the guys who were in the Six Day War, who were in the paratroopers who who fought in Jerusalem, and I would say liberated Jerusalem, the old city. Excellent, and. He, but that I don't know if all those guys liberated. They fought in Jerusalem. Oh, that's true. I, uh, I thought they were, but I, th- I thought so, but not. Maybe you're right. I'm not so sure they were the guys. I read it a couple of years ago. I don't yeah. remember. But anyway, whatever they were in the paratroopers we went there, and so they um, they they just have such a diverse kind of lives and opinions that go on after that. Um, you know, and they were all together in the army, and and it really gives you a a view into how um, the diversity of Israeli life and culture, and how that war, and, the effect and, that that had. And I would say that's probably true of any society that you have these guys who come together to fight. If you look in, you know, in the American army or any other army, wherever, like guys who kind because of, it's a, it's a really uh, it's really a goral. They just take a bunch of guys and stick them together. They don't. That's anything in common, um, other than they all were drafted at the same time or what have you. And then you see from you know from left to right to business to uh, religious to uh, many many different perspectives. So I think that really help it helps shapes your understanding of a society. For me, it was um, a book my high school teacher Yotav Eliach recommended to me. It was uh, uh, the Siege by Connor Cruz O'Brien, History of Zionism in the State of Israel. Much more than Walter LaCour's, however you say that guy's name. Do you think I said it right? And the other one is... (laughs) That's the problem with reading books is you don't know how to pronounce things. Uh, And the other is, and I don't know how to say his... (laughs) What's his name? Howard Morley Satcher? Sacker? Sacker, Sacker, yeah. Sacker was... uh, But Sacker is like... I don't think he shaped my opinion as much. He just gave me a lot of information. That's it. He gave me he gave me a critical mass of information that I've, I've I always turn back to in my head. Like if I'm not always conscious of it, but to me in my head, that's where I reached the critical mass of feeling I understood enough about Israeli history. It's not a great read. Siege re- Siege is written beautifully. I mean, is a painful read, but it's but it's but it is probably essential. Wow, I guess I would have to agree with you. Yeah, I just feel a little bad because it is not fun to read. Although, I will tell you that at a certain point, it's satisfying curiosity so thoroughly that it, that, that it fascinates you, even as the prose may not be elegant or engaging. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but it, it really just gives you like a thousand pages of... <laughs> Uh, of information and don't you feel like when you you the way you read a newspaper article before and after that book is totally different 
Well, I can't. I, don't I do. I just think I understand what's going on today much better because I understand the historical context. So I, and I will say something that is wildly scary. I think in some ways the book Exodus shaped my thinking in well, that's s- ways, you know, because it's a, it's, a, it's a historical novel. It's not, it's not Why is that scary? Uh, it's a narrative. That is a narrative of Zionism yeah. in Israel that had a huge impact on you. Yeah, and I'll say why it had a huge impact on me because I read it in high school. So that it's a time when you're. Oh, another book that really also I'll say that I think I I I, I, I want to resist the idea that that's scary. I'm okay with. I think that's good. I think if you read a, I mean that. Uh, what's his name? Uris has has a narrative he's trying to get across, and it was very meaningful to you. I don't see why that's a bad thing. That's an artist conveying an idea to you. Uh, that you that's a beautiful thing. I don't I don't see why that's scary. I'm going to say can I say something? No, I won't say something. No, now you have to <laughs> about this Leon Uris's books and and his characters, and they're very very pro assimilation and mix you know intermarriage and things like that. If you notice his like. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it be in the Warsaw Ghetto, uh, the, what is uh, Mila 18's book, or, or Exodus. So, you know, the main, the main um, male hero falls in love with the non-Jewish woman um, and those things. So that's... Uh, not every... The of the 1950s and, you know... It could uh, be that not every part of his narrative is part of what you've taken in and made yours, but you... But overall, what I'm saying is, yeah, I think I think that literature is a form of art, and if that inspires you, that's a, that's a very positive thing. I'd say actually a book, Oh Jerusalem, Oh Jerusalem. I think was the if I would say if I look at that, like with Yulian Yuris, like uh, the Exodus introduced me to the Zionist narrative, and, and Oh Jerusalem is. Very readable way. Oh, Jerusalem, the French. I can't even say their names. Collins and Lapierre. No, one guy's not French. There's Collins. Oh. It's two names. I can't remember their first names, but it's something Collins and something Lapierre, and it's the story of in the War of Independence, the battle for Jerusalem. Right, and I think that that actually shaped. It's a journalist. They're two journalists. It's written almost as 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 it used to be on every Jewish family's bookshelf when I was a kid. It read like a page turning novel. I will say this. It inspired me to read Menachem Begin's The Revolt, which had a much bigger shaping in the end. In other words, because I wanted to, they were very much telling one side of the Israeli political, uh, political spectrum's story, the things they said about... And the Arab side. Yeah. So when I wanted to see the other Israeli side, I went to Begin's The Revolt, and that had a huge impact on me. So I say, oh, oh Jerusalem, in, in its the kind of dual narrative of like, teaching, you know, talking about the Jewish and the Arab and going back and forth between the different families and the person and everything. It really personalized the struggle um, and, and made me sensitive to that idea of like we're talking about, about nuance and being critical thinking, but yet did not diminish at all my Zionist fervor, as you would say. No, I, uh, yeah, although I was disappointed in it when I looked more broadly and found how many how their biases made them blind to historical accuracy on so many occasions. But it's a very powerful read, and I and I would I like that in our list of things we have books that are older and more recent. By the way, that, I mean that's I think is any any book in your bias will blind you to historical accuracies. Correct. Even a book that's trying to be journalistic, but that yeah. there's also a difference between a journalist and a historian. Now historians make yeah. mistakes, but you have to separate. One of my favorite, I don't know that it's a shaping book, but a most powerful book is The Brigade by Howard Bloom which is, as a journalist, he interviewed three people who fought for the British 
in World War II for the Jewish Brigade. It reads like a page-turning novel, and if it wasn't interviews with the people who were there, I would say it's so bizarre it had to have been made up. I mean, when you have a chapter of Jews coming to a liberated concentration camps and guys standing on one side of the fence in their striped camp uniforms and with the Jewish star on them, emaciated, and guys on the other side, these Haganah guys with the Jewish star on their British military uniform, I mean, moments like that shouldn't happen in history. They're too, like, if I saw that in a fiction, I would say, well, that's a little heavy-handed. Well, I mean, I, I, um, but I, I mean, you had it all over in those camps of the Jews that came in and like they spoke Yiddish to the prisoners. You know, the you had Americans also. Yeah, yeah Brits also. Yeah, that's just a crazy historical moment. But I would recommend that book to to anybody. Really, anything. I, I, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of selling. Don't read this. I'm a big fan of saying read anything that you're curious about. But I do think that part of how we read. Do you disagree with me? That part of how we read the news is based on the history that we've learned and has influenced us and our values history and our values and uh, for sure i think it's uh i think it's probably a majority of how we read the news right so even a little headline like an interview with a head of operations of the army to understand that story you're using a lot of what you've gathered over the years and you're putting it into a context and i think that to answer my original question of how do we get how do we train students to do that I would argue that we passionately show them why history is so interesting and relevant and why varied perspectives are so important. And by modeling that in the classroom. You know, the, most, the most impactful way of education is modeling a Dugumai sheet is, you know, is is very critical part of education. So hopefully that's some that's a role that even this podcast plays. If you're if you're here even even if you're not a student anymore, or you're maybe you're not a student, but you but you inform yourself. A virtual student, yeah, an audio student. Um, well, I hate to say that because if it's an adult listening to it, I don't think I'm their teacher. But I do, I, I'm happy to be one of the voices in the conversation that they're having. Of course, I would love to have your voice back to let us know what you think. And of course, um, anyone who can give ratings on iTunes or recommend us in any other way, that would also be very appreciated. Always fun to talk to you about these issues, Alan. We didn't get so deep into any particular news story, though we're just reflecting on the news in general, but sometimes I think it's important to take a step back like that. Yeah, I agree. I think that that was kind of the idea that there was like, there's all the stuff we didn't get into was going on with politics with Netanyahu. Like, how do we understand that? And read yeah, I thought we were going to unpack that a little more and also talk a little bit more today about how you talk about differences in political ideology with students. In other words, I have an ideology. How do I talk about that with students? I actually don't find that that hard to do. All right, so I'm glad we left it out. <laughs> and we want to wish you a Mazel Tov or B'Shat Tova Mazel Tov, Mike, on your daughter's upcoming wedding. Yep, I'm very excited. Baruch Hashem. God is good. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Jerusalem U Podcast, The Teacher's Lounge. The Teacher's Lounge is produced by Matthew Lippman. You can subscribe to our podcast pretty much anywhere where you can find any podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And we'd really appreciate if you would give us feedback and ratings in those places and recommend it to your friends. Thanks. Bye-bye.